And finally for the program, let's talk of some unusual stories. And on the line I have Brian Smith. Okay, Brian. Hello, David. Now, details of a self-driving racing car, Robo Race. It has been suggested that it could be done. It could be a showpiece for the latest self-driving technologies. Brian, what would we lose if we lose the driver out of the car? Yes. Apart from the fact that you've got human error, which adds to the excitement. Well, human error is everything, and, and, and character, and you, you, you won't have those amazing larger-than-life characters that we have in, um, in motor racing, of course, you know, you had Peter Brock, who was very much like a machine himself as a driver, compared with some of the other drivers of his era who were much more sort of character-driven, I suppose. They were the, mm. the kind of... Uh, he was um, HAL 9000, and maybe some of the other drivers were uh, more like those uh, the guys stuck inside the spaceship with HAL. So we miss out on that, that sort of... Uh, not just the mistakes that humans make and the decisions... The kind of flawed and and kind of uh, weird decisions that people make that lead to excitement in races. I guess if Formula One hasn't been very exciting for a long time, though, has it, David? So, so I mean, the the fact that you've got teams, you know, very strictly controlled drives and uh, vehicles has made Formula One a bit boring. I wonder if uh, the the potential variability in programming for these vehicles might make it interesting. Well, that raises the point we've discussed in the past about whether you're a good programmer or not is how you may judge a car in the future. Nothing at all to do with the sense of the, you know, the driving through your seat of your pants or any of that. It will be judged on measures. But, but I think you're right. We do lose that sort of personality, including things like the NASCAR punch-ups. <laughs> Where would you be without those? You know, the raising the arm in displeasure. If it was a mechanical arm, it, it would lose some of the intensity, wouldn't it? That's right. The car's not going to throw its helmet to the ground and storm off. <laughs> As the other car goes past. The one-fingered s- salute. Who, who Who is going to spray champagne? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, how will, who's the winner? Of the race, is it the the AI? Is it the laptop? Someone brings a laptop up to the podium, or, or the car itself? A, a, a nerd, a nerdy guy brings a laptop. A nerd. Actually, here's where I think there's a strong argument for instead of just autonomous cars, but transformers, like the children's toy, oh, yes. so that after the race finishes, it transforms <laughs> into some kind of bipedal robot that could come up onto the podium and spray the champagne. And it's then got to go out and date a supermodel. <laughs> yes, someone from the production line of a car manufacturer robot. Yes, another robot. Yeah. Yeah, another robot. They could be throwing throwing hats out into the crowd or chips or something like that. Computer <laughs> chips. Uh-huh. Yeah, a memory stick. <laughs> That's right. USB sticks into the crowd. <laughs> Where are you going to be with the radio messages when the car's not performing well and you get a, a highly paid arrogant driver going back to the, you know, radioing back to the pits saying this car is a, a heap of crap. You know, it just it just doesn't do to it. The only thing that it could improve, of course, is the after-race interviews. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. most drivers, it's just boring sort of stuff. Now, computers could generate what random word generations you know to do it but perhaps they could even be more creative certainly it wouldn't have been hard than the typical 
interview after a race. It could be very cool if they programmed it with NRL player personalities. <laughs> you could then have them sort of in nightclubs or drive-throughs. Um, they could be then at the interviews and you know talking about having let not just themselves down, but but uh, the entire mainframe <laughs> being role models, rolling models. Of course, uh, you'd have to have good-looking computers as well. That would get you a run more than the other. But we don't have the computer equivalent of the first woman or the first Afro-American or the first Pakistani oh, to win see, a, yes. a Grand Prix. Yes. Yeah, we, we're just stuck with a particular type of car. Maybe it's it's sort of Intel versus Microsoft and that <sighs> sort of stuff. The first Hewlett Packard to win a Grand Prix will be such a shock, it'll make front-page news. This would be very interesting in playgrounds, of course, where you move from Ford Holden into sort of Intel versus NVIDIA or that sort of stuff. Go Dell. (laughs) Punch up to the playground. (laughs) But interestingly, David, you you talked about appearance and um, looking at the picture of one of the robot cars, it's still very car-like, right? It's very recognisable as a a car that a person could sit in, but there's nowhere for the person to sit, right? It's, It's still, you know, very much shaped like a passenger carrying vehicle and, and this is the thing i've always been disappointed with so far in um the rise of autonomous vehicles is that um you know, they they're, they're not sort of challenging the whole design obviously you know some autonomous vehicles are going to have to carry people and goods and, and you know you would expect a design that facilitates that but if you're just racing them david haven't you got the freedom to sort of i don't know in the way that the america's cup you know suddenly new zealand produces a, a catamaran instead of a monohull boat. But why couldn't you now introduce tricycles and, and you know, multiple-wheeled vehicles uh, as well as just these conventional-looking cars? I always thought that if we went to hydrogen power or electric power, we might well be able to do away with a three-box design of cars mm. where mm. you have the engine, the, the main part of the body and the boot, simplistically speaking. But you're right, we haven't. We haven't made a, a quantum leap with the new technology. And, and here's an example of, of course, you don't need room for their legs or their body. Uh, mm. but, the, but the interesting thing, safety now, and the computers may insist on this, is to protect the CPU. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I guess you need a wheelbase and you need a, a track to make it stable at the sort of speeds you're driving at. But, but for example, here, in this case, you the picture of the car and... and I hope people will look at the robo race cars on the internet, but um, the whole car itself is sort of aerodynamic and working with downforce in the shape of the body. So that's mm. interesting. But, David, we talk about the future. Ford announced that they expect an autonomous vehicle on the road in five years' time. So it's just around the corner. I think particularly in the racetrack situation, I think that's probably much easier, mm. that you can define the limits. There's no cross-traffic, there's no pedestrians, unless they're an angry driver, which, of course, we've done away without those, throwing their helmet, as you suggested. It's all in one direction, maybe an overtaking move, and that may be probability. It might pay a bit into that, but you're right. I think it probably could use autonomous racing quite readily mm. now. In terms of Ford in, in year 2000, I have a sneaky suspicion that we're 98% there, but the last 2% is going to be very, very hard. One of them might be that you might only be able to use it in certain circumstances. Do you realise two-thirds of the roads in Australia are gravel or dirt? <laughs> That'll be interesting, yes. I heard the minister, the federal minister, 
talking about that the other day. So there's two-thirds of the roads that you probably won't be able to take an autonomous car down, but equally, those are the roads you're not likely to do anyway. Brian, if I'm a parent, is there a car that might be for me to take the kids to school? Well, look, if you're a parent who likes a bit of performance, I think there is. So uh, there's a company called Busy Moto, which is owned by a fellow called uh, Busy Ezeroaya. He likes to kind of do interesting things with with kind of unusual cars. So his thing is about um, a massive power, and uh, he's uh, he's built a 708 horsepower Hyundai Sonata. Previously, he's built, built a 600 horsepower Elantra, and he's got his hands on a, a, a Honda Odyssey, and he's uh, boosted that up to a thousand horsepower. Now that's about four or five times the the horsepower of the uh, the standard Honda Odyssey People Mover. Now it's going to be auctioned later this month, and you can, if you do a bit of a search on the, the YouTube's, you can probably watch Matt Farah drive it back to back with a Porsche 911 Turbo, and it's a front wheel drive uh, sort of passenger van, basically a Honda Odyssey, but with a uh, thousand horsepower and six speed manual transmission so this one's not so much dropping the kids at school as uh, as perhaps uh, you know robbing them stealing them from school and and uh, making it get away it's not the first people mover to do it in 1995 renault uh, had a, a space people mover which they put a formula one engine mid-engined into it now the interesting thing about that the formula one engine at the time had only 800 horsepower and so here's someone with a yeah. with more horsepower. It, it and shows a you perhaps, yeah. But equally, it had carbon fibre and everything. It accelerated naught to 100 k in 2.8 seconds. So it was pretty good. This one, of course, is a front wheel drive. Now, Brian, when Ragnotti, the great driver, uh, tested the space back in 1995, they showed it going around a circuit, handling well and performance and cornering beautifully. Uh, in the modern world, with this new one that we've got, they show it burning out the front tyres. Doing burnouts. Doing burnouts. I think Top Gear's got a lot to answer for. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I agree. That's the Top Gear stamp, isn't it, of of uh, being childish, basically. Yeah, smoking the tyres is... I was going to say, no word on uh, how many cup holders it has or anything like that, how many boogie boards will go in the rear, but uh, you would want certainly very secure cup holders in a vehicle like this, would Yes, yes, they, they could slop around it. But, of course, it's front-wheel drive. The Space, back from 1995, was rear-wheel drive. Uh, this was a front-wheel drive with a 1,000 horsepower. The first Honda Odyssey came out in 1994. It had 200 horsepower. That's the top of the, the bigger V6. The top-of-the-range one in Australia now has less, 173 horsepower. So it's actually regressing. This is obviously aimed at reversing that trend. Well, certainly keep an eye out for that auction. It'd be interesting to see what it goes for, David. Yes, yes, I won't be bidding. Brian, the seven deadly sins. I have a feeling that transport enhances all of them. Tell me more, David. Stick with me here, Brian. Western Australia has a whole pile of craft brewers brewing beer, and it's allowed them to have a bit of a boom industry, but their biggest limitation is getting their product to the market and its transport. So if we increase and improve the transport, we may well have an increase in alcoholic consumption. 
And so my great concern is that transport may lead to, well, let's say, the seven deadly sins. Now, Brian, the seven deadly sins, hubris, perhaps, but greed. Now, is not cars totally associated with that sin, the greed? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. wanting to have a better car than other people, you know, Rolls Royces and... And also that greed of taking space and, and dominating it. The big four-wheel drive. Yeah, forcing people to, to press a button and ask permission to cross the road. Yeah, that my big car is more important than your bike or another deadly sin, lust. Well, we, oh, we yes, talked about that uh, last week, I think. Uh, deeply ingrained in cars. Hmm. Malicious envy. Well, that's, uh, again, very much that uh, if my neighbour buys a good car, I've got to rush out and buy a slightly better one. Gluttony, how would you relate that to transport, Brian? Uh, Drive-through restaurants, maybe, David? Ah, yes. Yep, so uh, food delivery. Restaurants was a rather bold term, I think, uh, although (laughs) in the sense that it provides food, I'll accept that. Drive-through calories. Inordinate anger, well, road rage. Of course. Another deadly sin. And the final deadly sin, of course, is sloth. (laughs) You drive down to the shops to buy a loaf of bread and complain that it's 50 cents dearer, but you've just spent $4 getting the car there and back. That's why we're driving to the gym to then run on a treadmill. (laughs) Now, David, the the other aspect of this story that troubled me is this idea that, that, uh, you know, somebody who's brewing... um, beer in an outback location or a remote location in a massive state like Western Australia complaining about the cost of transport and I just think, you know, is this a topographical issue? Is it the tyranny of distance where it's really just perhaps it's Western Australia's not the best place to brew something that doesn't travel well? So, you know, craft beers, you know, I love a craft beer, but they don't travel very well, so they end up being very localised. You know, so you go to your local brewery because they can't be shipped for ages. They can't sit in a in a sort of a shipping yard for um, a day under a forty degree Celsius sun. So maybe here is is where we should be encouraging the brewers to to set up shop closer to their market, or perhaps on the east coast rather than the west coast. I must approach my wife and uh, suggest that I brew my own beer then, hmm. purely from your logic of uh, wanting to remove the need for transport costs. Act locally. Act locally, yeah. Drink globally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talking about travelling and how how, how well it travels, um, did I ever tell you that story a mate of mine was in marketing and he was uh, one of the major international marketing companies, the owner of it, a well-known name, had his own uh, vineyard in France and he had a friend who was a wine connoisseur come over and uh, he gave him some of his own wine. He said, do you know where the grapes from that come from? He said, no. He said, that paddock over there. And the guy said, well, it doesn't travel very well, does it? <laughs> now, Brian, you have a quick story for us. Well, certainly, David. It's uh, a billboard story. And uh, uh, American Muslims have taken to uh, roadside billboards to send a message to IS, Islamic State, and their message is quite simple. They say, hey, ISIS on the billboard, you suck. And they uh, they draw a, a, a quote from the Quran, life is sacred, and they sign it from actual Muslims. So this is a, a much nicer roadside sign, I think, David, than, um, than many of them. Well, the issue of signposting is should it be too distracting 
or too emotive to a driver. I once wrote the policy document for a large organisation, motoring organisation, where that was one of the policies, that we didn't want billboards to be distracting. Now, if we make them political, and we have anyway, I'm not condemning this particular issue by any means, but if we make them political, could that enhance or, or, or diminish the safety on the roads? Now, for example, there was a story the other day of someone who'd put a couple of Trump, vote for Trump signs, and that immediately someone drove off the road and ran them down what I would call some justification. That, uh, is that a danger? Yeah, possibly. I'd I, I like to think of this thing as educational uh, rather than, um, yes. than distracting. Or, but it could anger some folk, I imagine. It could certainly anger any Islamic State people driving past. Uh, they may be then in, sort of encouraged to vandalise it, perhaps. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, of course, uh, learn how to love the bomb. You realise that, uh, you know, this thing is the property of a private consortium. What about the poor guy that's got to clean the sign? You know, those little people that have those little vans that they go down the sign and clean the sign? Someone from ISIS might blow up his truck. Oh, you could have a big sign up there, someone like from Pauline Hanson, Senator, saying, the stuff you're breathing now is not pollution. I've, I've read a story on the internet about it. <laughs> so this would be balance, is it? You, know, you want facts and you want other stuff as well. NASA made him do it, yeah. <laughs> Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's Brian Smith, and we were talking some unusual stories to do with motoring and transport.